In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So last week we finished the book of Ephesians, um, and God willing, today we're going to go move on to another one of the prison epistles um, that St. Paul also wrote during the same period of time that he was um, in, in prison in Rome, um, and that is the book of Philippians, which is also one of his very famous books, and it's a very short one as well. It's only four chapters. Um, so, uh, of course, the, the term Philippians is referring to the people who live in the city of Philippi, and here you can see um, on the map uh, where, where Philippi is, um, just north of the Aegean Sea. Um, and it was considered one of the most uh, important cities in the region um, because of its location. Um, like if you were traveling uh, to uh, Macedonia, like if you're traveling from like Asia Minor to Macedonia or from Israel to Macedonia, you would pass through um, uh, by sea, you would pass uh, through uh, the city of Philippi. Um, and it was given the name Philippi after King Philip II. King Philip II of Macedonia was the father of Alexander the Great. So it was named after him. Um, so, of course, he was Greek. But then later on, the Romans conquered um, the city, um, and it became part of Macedonia. Um, and um, its history is uh, in the year 357 BC. This is when King Philip uh, of the kingdom of Macedonia took over uh, this province and he annexed it to his kingdom and he kept making the city um, larger by expanding it, adding more lands um, to the city uh, to strengthen the city. And then it eventually fell under the authority of the Romans and became um, a Roman colony. When Emperor Octavius, the Roman emperor, um, became emperor and he changed his name to um, Augustus Caesar, uh, he gave like special attention to the city and he renewed it, renovated it, he made it even larger and he granted it what was called the colonial status, which meant that the inhabitants of the city had the same rights and privileges that were enjoyed by all the people who were inhabiting Rome, which was the capital itself. So it was a very popular city, metropolitan city, large city. Um, and it started to have, over time, more of the Roman culture um, rather than the Greek culture and even adopted the Latin language, which was the Roman language as opposed to um, the Greek language. Um, and it was, of course, a Gentile city, so the predominant religion um, was, uh, was paganism. Um, we read in the book of Acts, uh, which um, describes the accounts of uh, St. Paul's missionary journeys, um, all of the preaching that had happened here in the city. So St. Paul, of course, he had visited uh, Philippi before, um, on more than one occasion, and he preached there. So I'm going to go really briefly to just kind of um, describe some of the major events that we read in the book of Acts that happened in the city of Philippi. So around the year 50 AD, this was during St. Paul's second missionary journey, we read in Acts chapter 16, when he first entered into, um, into the city, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, <coughs> concluding that the, Lord, that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So the way actually that St. Paul initially was called to preach in Macedonia in the city of Philippi uh, was like through this uh, vision that he saw. You know, seeing this man saying, come help us. So it says like there's some like divine providence at work in, in, in the establishment of the churches um, in Macedonia um, and, and here in the, in the city of Philippi. So that was how St. Paul first uh, was introduced um, to that, that region. And he went there accompanied by uh, Silas, 
um, and St. Luke. St. Luke is the one who recorded everything and wrote it down in the book of Acts. And also Timothy, um, they all went together to, to Philippi. Um, and they established there um, the first Christian church in Europe. It was the first church that was established in all of Europe. When he got there, we continue reading in Acts 16. It says, And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So this woman, Lydia, um, she was a seller of purple, uh, uh, like purple garments, uh, like, a, like expensive cloth. Uh, and she was one of the first people to uh, accept the message of St. Paul when he met her and he um, baptized her. Um, and so then she became the first Christian in Europe, um, uh, Lydia. Uh, and Philippi became the first city uh, in Europe to have people who are Christians living there. St. Luke also wrote um, about the spirit of divination, which was something that was happening there. Of course, we know, again, this is a pagan city, and people would practice um, divination. And so there was the story of the slave girl who was um, her masters who purchased her. Um, she would like uh, do like practice fortune telling, and so she would make money. Um, they would they would make money with through her because of the fortune telling that she did. And so Saint Paul, after casting out the demon, um, this man was very upset, and he had Paul and Silas, his companion, thrown into the prison. Um, but despite the imprisonment that they were in prison there. Um, they were praying and singing hymns in the night. This is the famous story uh, where there was like a sudden earthquake and all of the, the jail was shaken and the doors of the, of the cells were open, um, but everyone remained where they were and, and they, didn't, they didn't try to flee. And when the jailer saw that this happened, um, of course, he was very surprised um, and, and they actually went to his house and preached to his family and they all were baptized um, that same night. And then finally after that, they, they were released the next morning um, and they went back to visit Lydia again and visited with some of the believers there and then they, they departed. So that was their initial experience in the city of Philippi as recorded in Acts chapter 16. Um, we also know that afterward um, and during uh, the third missionary journey, St. Paul also um, visited there and this is recorded in Acts chapter 20. Um, and then later when the Philippians heard about him being imprisoned in Rome, which was about the year 61 to 62 AD, they sent Epaphroditus to him with a gift. And this is described actually in the book of Philippians in chapter 4. Um, so they, 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 you know, out of their love for St. Paul, they sent this man Epaphroditus with him with a gift to give to him um, and to see how he is doing um, and so on. So he had a very, very close and warm relationship with the Philippians. Um, and that's reflected in uh, the style and, and the content of this book. You know, a lot of times St. Paul, when he is speaking to a church, he is rebuking them for the things that they're they're doing wrong. But actually here, he doesn't rebuke them for anything. And it is just like encouragement, um, speaking about the, the joy of the, of the Christian faith um, and so on. As far as the date of the epistle, um, this epistle, together with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, which are the four prison epistles, um, were, were written during uh, St. Paul's first captivity. 
which was in Rome from 61 to 63 AD. And Paul, uh, again, the man Epaphroditus who was sent by the Philippians to him, he was the one who carried the epistle back to the Philippians again, and that's how we received it. Um, as far as the purpose of the epistle, so um, because, again, St. Paul, he is in prison, so he is focusing so much on having joy and faith in the midst of affliction. Um, and this is, this is uh, one of the major themes uh, in the book. Uh, and he portrays for us the way that we should all live and we should all be joyful in the midst of all kinds of suffering that we um, go through. Uh, he is like the perfect example for us because he is going through like all of the suffering we can imagine and yet he is always joyful. He is not um, complaining. <coughs> we saw this also in Ephesians that there wasn't a single time where he even asked the people to pray that he would be released or to help him be released. But his focus is always on you know, the, the mission and how God is allowing this for the purpose of the mission and to be always joyful and encouraging the people um, who are also afflicted and suffering in various ways. Um, so it's showing us that um, no amount of suffering or persecution uh, or, you know, or struggle in the world can, can take away the comfort that we re receive in the Lord Jesus Christ because in him we find the true comfort. We find um, what, what maybe we try to find in the world. We try to find by uh, escaping. We try to find by um, you know, indulging ourselves in various things, maybe trying to forget our problems. But St. Paul shows us in this book that actually it is through the Lord Jesus Christ that we find comfort to be able to withstand any kind of struggle that we experience um, in life. Um, as I said, there is no doctrinal debates or, or can any rebukes or anything that's in this book. It's just focusing on that kind of joy in the midst of suffering, uh, and, and that's like the major theme. Uh, as I said, it's four chapters. Um, the first chapter, the, fo the focus is on joy in the midst of suffering. Um, the second one is joy in the ministry. The third is joy in the Lord. And the fourth is just joy in general, like joy in everything that we do. So definitely the, the major theme here um, is joy. So he starts and he says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ, Jesus, who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, So as we know in every epistle for St. Paul, he starts out with his name, Paul, um, and he introduces himself and, and gives the apostolic greeting um, to the people he is writing to. Um, here he's also mentioning Timothy. Okay, because Timothy is his fellow worker, it's, he's, it's his assistant, he's also a bishop um, in the same mission to the Philippians. He was with St. Paul when he visited the Philippians at the beginning, so they um, know him, um, and he, so he is writing like from both uh, himself um, and, from, uh, and, and from Timothy. Um, also, uh, just to be clear though, Timothy did not take part in the writing of the epistle. Uh, because again, St. Paul wrote this when he was in the prison, um, but, but it's like this is the sentiment that's coming both from St. Paul and St. Timothy together. Um, unlike many of the other epistles where St. Paul introduces himself as the apostle of God, um, defending his apostleship, trying to show that he is truly an apostle and that his message is coming from God and he was called to be an apostle and all these things, called to be an uh, apostle according to the gospel of God, which uh, we hear that repeated often um, 
uh, we even, that's even part of the introduction when we ever we read one of the Pauline epistles in the liturgy. But the reason that he spends so much time emphasizing his apostleship in many different places is because his authority was rejected in many different places. And people would accuse him saying that he is speaking of his own words or his own philosophy or that he was not one of the apostles when the Lord Christ was alive on the earth. He only became an apostle later on. And so people would question his authority. And so he was always trying to uh, to shed a light on this and showing that he was an authentic apostle, which is why they should listen to him, that his message is the true message of God. His words are the words of God um, and not his own words. Here, though, he doesn't emphasize this apostleship because, again, his relationship with this church is a very warm one. They accepted him completely. They saw him as their father and he is their children. So he's not trying to defend himself. He's not trying to prove to them that he is really an apostle. But instead, he refers to himself as the bondservant, right? The bondservant of Jesus Christ, which is emphasizing not his um, authority, but is emphasizing his humility. He's emphasizing who is it that he follows. Um, and St. John Chrysostom, he, he makes a comment about this. He says, calling himself a servant and not an apostle. How great indeed is this rank, and how it is the top of all goodness, to be a servant of Christ and not just someone called for ministry. A servant of Christ is actually free as far as sin is concerned, and being a slave for someone, he could not be enslaved by another. Namely, he could not share his service to Christ with some other master. So what he's saying is, as a, as a servant of Christ, as a slave of Christ, Christ is his master, and so he could have no other master. There was no other master that could have dominion over him. There wasn't, he didn't have the, a master of money or of pleasure or of power or anything on the earth. His master was Christ alone, and so um, he was free in the sense that there was nothing else that kind of held itself over him or, or brought him into bondage. Um, also, what's interesting here is he's writing to all the saints in Christ. It's often St. Paul referred to um, the, the people of the congregation as the saints because they are called for a life of godliness and holiness. So they are saints, um, just as also we are saints. So he's writing to the saints in Christ who are in Philippi, and he's explicitly mentioning um, the bishops and the deacons. Okay, um, So we know that the first ranks in the church uh, <coughs> were the bishops and the deacons, and the, the rank of the presbyter, which is the priest, which became like the assistant to the bishops as a separate rank came afterward. But here when he is addressing the bishops, he's like addressing all of the clergy. He's addressing the bishops and he's addressing the priests. So he's like focusing on both of them um, together. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with all joy. So again, he is seeing that those people um, who he is writing to, they are a source of joy for him. You know, sometimes when you, you read the writings of St. Paul to certain people, you can tell that he is writing, of course he has love for the people, but some people are a source of agony for him. You know, like they're a source of suffering for him. They, 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 are, not, um, they are not accepting what he is saying easily. There are divisions 
They are not following through with what he asked them to do. They are struggling in many ways. And so you can sense in his writing that he has some kind of frustration, that he has he has a rebuke, that he, even when he speaks to the Corinthians and he tells them, I don't want to come now because if I come now and I find you doing the same exact things that you were doing wrong before, then I will spend my whole you know, trip rebuking you, which is not what I want. Like he sees that there are many churches that have a lot of struggles and um, are, are going through a lot of difficulties. Keep in mind that these are people who have no Christian background, right? Like this is, this is Christianity is a new thing. You know, these are people who grew up in a pagan background with a pagan culture um, where certain types of behaviors wa was very normal. Um, and expected. And now St. Paul is calling all of these different churches to live in a higher standard, a standard that they have never lived. You know, maybe we have the benefit, even maybe if we are struggling and failing, but we can look to other Christians, whether it be Christians in the history of the church or Christians that we know of in the church that are very faithful and holy people. And we can look to them and say, I want to emulate this person. Like, I want to be like this. You know, how can I learn to be like this person? Well, this first generation of Christians, they didn't have anyone to look to other than the apostles themselves. They didn't have other examples maybe in their community of people who had lived a life of faith for their entire life. Like they were babes in Christ, right? They were new. And so it's very normal when there is someone coming new that they don't yet understand and they don't know really what they are doing and they don't know really what they are, how they are called to live and they don't have that introspection to see in themselves yet all the ways that they fall short. You know, oftentimes we have in our vision only certain sins that we commit and say, these are the sins that I commit. And if I fix these sins, then like everything else is good, right? But maybe we don't see behind that sin. We, we just see the one thing that is in our eyes so big, but there's a lot of other things behind it that are invisible to us because all our focus is on the one thing. Um, or some people have a kind of like attitude toward Christianity where Christianity is just like a belief system and my life is pretty good the way that it is and I'm not really going to change anything but I have certain beliefs you know and I and I and I and I affirm those beliefs and maybe I come to church and so on but really to, to what we see in of course in scripture and in all of the kind of the exhortations of St. Paul toward all of these different churches is that he wants them to live a completely holy, blameless, sanctified life. And that is from A to Z in every way. So when he is coming to them, he is telling them, you know, leave behind your old life. Like, don't continue to live in that old life that you were living. I'm calling you to a new one, which is why there are a lot of struggles, right? And a lot of missteps and a lot of regression and a lot of stumbling because it was hard for people who had never lived this way before to start living this way. Here, though, with the Philippians, you can see that one of the greatest sources of joy that he has while he is in prison are the Philippians, right? Like, they are kind of like the... The, the pinnacle, like the, the kind of like his, like when he looks to a model of success and he looks to like model of like people who are, who are living truly like a Christian life, he looks to them, right? And every time he remembers them, even though he is in the midst of all kinds of suffering, it is something that brings him joy. So he is thanking God for them, saying, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, right? Like every single time I remember you, I, I, I'm happy. Um, always in every prayer of mine making request for you, um, all with joy. So he has this very, um, very special, intimate relationship with the Philippians. So what is it that he is thankful for? And what is it that brings him joy? He says, for your fellowship in the gospel. 
from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what is it that is he is thankful for? And what is it that brings him joy when he remembers them? He, he says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So he sees that they have like this very strong faith and they have a fellowship with one another because fellowship in the gospel is means a relationship with Christ, a relationship with the truth, and also a relationship with each other because we are all the body of Christ as one. We can't have a relationship with Christ without having a relationship with others, right? So fellowship, the concept of fellowship in the scriptures, um, you know, is not just uh, like it's, it's not just something to be taken lightly, right? It's, it's not something to be taken lightly. Sometimes people have the attitude that fellowship in the church is just like socializing, right? And I can choose to socialize or I can choose not to socialize, right? Like I can choose that I want to be with people or I can choose that I don't want to be with people right? That's up to me. As a social life, I choose this, right? But fellowship in the church is not the same thing. Fellowship in the church is saying, in order for the body to be one, because we are one body, in order for the body to be one, we have to be together, right? And being together in all kinds of different ways. Obviously, we are together in the liturgy, and we are partaking of the one body in the liturgy, and we serve together, and we receive service from each other. So each of us is catering to the needs of the other through the service. Like the body is caring for itself. We pray for one another. You know, we, we, we find ourselves immersed in each other's company in every activity. Whether it be a purely spiritual activity like worship and prayer. Or whether it be even um, kind of like a casual activity like spending time together, going to a place together. Because all of these things strengthen the bond of the body of Christ. So I, I definitely, we have to make this distinction between socializing as a personal thing. I choose who I socialize with. I can choose having my friends and whoever I, I like to spend my time with and so on. But fellowship is a completely different thing. Fellowship is a requirement for Christianity, right? So someone might say, you know, I'm a believer, but I want to be left alone. You know, like I'm a believer, but I don't want to talk to anyone. And I just like to, I'm just going to come and pray and I'm going to leave. And actually many people will say this. I say, I just come and pray and I leave and go home and I, I don't want to see anyone. I want to talk to anyone. Well, maybe that is a reflection that there's something not right. If you cannot stand to be with the other members of the body of Christ, why is that? You know, is, is it because absolutely everyone, there's something wrong with them? Like every single person around you, there's something wrong with them? Or maybe... So so the, the point is, is that we can't just say that all that we get out of coming to church is I'm coming to pray and take communion and go home. Obviously, that's crucial and very important. But the, 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 the fellowship part of being in the body, serving one another, spending time with one another, this is a critical part of the body. You know, like imagine, like how could you have a body if like you'd say you have an arm, but that arm is detached and it's over there, you know, and that arm is not connected to the rest of the body in any way. Maybe sometimes it comes and connects, does something, and then it de detaches again and goes over here, right? That's not part of the body. That's more like a tool, you know, like where you grab a hammer and then you use the hammer and then you put the hammer away. But that's not being, that's not something that's a part of you, 
To be a part of you means that it is always with you, right? Always with you. It is something that you are, you are a member of the body. You're a member of a community of people. Yes. Um, so I think oftentimes we say fellowship where we're like, oh, the church needs more fellowship. And so we always move towards like a social activity, right? Like bowling or whatever. Um, but if you're saying fellowship is not social activity, then how do you build fellowship in the church? No, you can have a social activity be fellowship. But what I'm trying to say is when people think of social activity, what they think of is something up to my discretion. Like, for instance, I can choose I want to go out with my friends or not. Like, no one's going to force me to say I'm going to go out and do something, right? Because that's my social life. I can choose to have an active social life. I can choose to have not as active social life. I can choose a specific group of friends. I can choose, and that's up to me. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But there is another type of interaction, which I'm calling the fellowship interaction, which is not, which, yes, there might be socializing involved in it, but it is not up to my discretion in the sense that it is just as important mm. that I participate in that as I participate in the liturgy. And it includes everyone. And it includes the whole church, mm. right? Because again, w when it's a social activity, I pick the two, three, four, five people that I'm the most comfortable with and I hang out with those people because that's my, that's my group that I'm comfortable with. But when we're talking about fellowship, fellowship is not I'm gonna pick out two or three people and those are the people that I'm with. Fellowship is I have a relationship with the whole body, right? And that's one of the things that we try to do is we try to remove barriers between people so that they get to know each other regardless of culture, regardless of age, regardless of whatever. And, and, and I'm not saying that's easy, right? Because by our nature, we naturally gravitate toward those people who are the most similar to us and we want to just spend time with them. And again, I, I'm not trying to say that that's wrong, but the, 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 the better way is for us to kind of expand our horizons and make an intentional effort to be in fellowship with the whole body, right? Like when we say, for instance, like make an effort when somebody new comes, make an effort to greet them. Maybe your natural personality and your natural, you know, like inclination is, oh, it's a new person, I don't want to go near them, I'm nervous or whatever. But the fellowship is saying, no, even if you feel nervous and even if you're awkward and even whatever, you must go talk to them because you are bringing them into the body when you do that, right? This is part of the fellowship, right? The fellowship with Christ, if, you, if we all have fellowship with Christ, that means we have fellowship with one another. It's impossible not to. It's like marriage. When you say that we are, we are one with God and we are one with each other, right? You can't have one without the other. Right? So if we are truly the body of Christ, and he said we are not bodies of Christ, we are one body of Christ. So again, when a person comes with the attitude like, I'm just going to come and I'm going to pray, I'm going to go home. I mean, it's definitely better than not coming. Right? But that's not, like, that, that's, not the, that's not the ideal situation. Right? The ideal situation is, while I am here, I, I'm, 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 I'm open to that fellowship. And again, the fellowship comes in different forms. Service is a type of fellowship, caring for other people in the body of Christ, showing love and compassion to other people in the world. This is a type of fellowship. The spending time just enjoying each other's company, this is also a type of fellowship. Praying together is a type of fellowship. Um, you know, serving the community outside together is a type of fellowship. So many, many different things that we, that we have in the church are types of fellowship. So we should all 
participate in them as much as we can because this unifies the body as one. Is that something that's limited to within your parish? No. Like fellowship just in general? Because the, ch the church is the whole body of Christians. It's not just your parish, right? It's everyone. So definitely. You know, this is why, like, you know, people come and ask me, like, is it wrong for me to have very close friends that are non-Christian? No, it's not wrong. I'm not saying that it's wrong. But look at what is being offered to you. What is being offered to you is an entire global community of people who are the body of Christ, of which you are a member. And if you find yourself unable to have close relationships with any of them so that you need to go outside and make close relationships with people who are not even believers, ask yourself why. Like there's something missing that, that like someone is offering you, you know, billions of dollars over here. And you're like, eh, I would rather go over here and $5, $10 that I find on the street, right? It doesn't make sense, right? What the church is offering us is a global community of people to be one with in Christ um, that we can serve and that serve us. So there is nothing that I should lack in the church, right? The people who come and say, I was offended or that, like it's very, it's like, it's like really bad. Like for someone to feel like they were pushed out of the church is very bad. Like the whole purpose of the church is so that you don't feel that way, right? So it's like we are going completely contrary to the mission of the church whenever we treat people in such a way that they feel like they have to leave. Now, sometimes people get offended for, for, you know, for reasons that are not justified. Uh, but, but what I'm saying is that if, if we are to choose, <coughs> if we are to choose where do I want to be, I want to be in the place that is showing me kindness and love and service and also allowing me to show the same to others. And if I find for whatever reason that I'm not able to be in this place and there's something that I have to deal with, there's something wrong that I have to address, you know, because it's not a valid reason to just say, well, I prefer to be alone. No, as part of Christ, you are not alone. By definition, you cannot be alone in Christ because in Christ, you're automatically with Christ. And the moment you are with Christ, you're also with everyone else who is with Christ. It's kind of like a, like a, like a child whose parents have, you know, you, you've got like five, six, seven, ten other siblings and that you all live in the same house. And then you say, you know, I just want to be with the parent, but I don't want to be with everyone else. Well, that's not possible because you're all living together in the same house, right? So w we have to understand that, okay? So he's saying, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, like he's saying, like, you have been faithful from the very beginning. Again, like he's... he's He's praising them, right? He's saying, you have been faithful and God's grace has been working in you from the very beginning. And then he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Meaning what? Meaning that the state at which you were called is not the state that you are going to remain, right? Because if Christ is a sanctifier, if being in the presence of Christ sanctifies us, then he has begun a good work. In the moment of our baptism, this work has begun, but the work is not complete, right? So the work continues, which is why over the course of our life, we should keep changing. We should keep approaching him. We should keep, you know, um, like 
growing deeper in our relationship, going deeper in our, in our, in our virtues, in, in the life of holiness, in desiring the holy life, and so on, and that God has begun this work, but he has not ended the work. The work is not going to end. The work is going to continue until the very last breath, until the day of Jesus Christ, right? Until the very end of the world, right? He has begun a good work in you, and so it is not a static thing. Our relationship with Christ is not static. It's not something that just starts and that's it, like here I am now. No, it is a dynamic one. It is a dynamic one in my prayers. It's dynamic in my worship, in my service. It's dynamic in my confessions. It's dynamic in so many ways. And, and because it's dynamic and because it's a work and because God is the one who begun the work, not we begun the work, God is the one who begun the work, then we should be willing and, and, and realize that we are to go where the work takes us. And by work here, I'm not referring to like, a task that I've been asked to do. Um, the work is the work of God on us. The work of God with us in our life, wherever that might lead. That it is a work that has begun. And so maybe I am, for the moment, here in this place, like in my life, I'm, I'm in a certain place in my life, but that doesn't mean that I will forever be in this place. Maybe the people even that I'm with now, maybe these are not the people that I'm going to be with in the future. The location is not going to be the same location necessarily that I will be with the future. My career is not necessarily going to be the same that I will be in the future, right? So many things about my life are going to continue to change. And I'm not trying to focus on the outward things, right? But it's also the inward things. God is has a purpose for me, and that purpose necessitates that I go through different seasons and different times and different places with different people and so on so that I could come to kind of the fullness of the plan that he has for me, that he has been working um, on me from the very beginning. If you look like at a woman like St. Mary Magdalene, for instance, you know, she started out as a woman who was demon-possessed. You know, she was, she was demon-possessed, but in the end she became a saint. Or the Roman soldier who stabbed Christ on the side with a spear, whose name was Longinus, he ended up becoming a believer and a martyr. You know, who would have thought so? Right, So that work begun in that person and begun even before they became Christian, actually. God is working. God wants to bring us all to the knowledge of the truth. So here he is saying to them, even though you, you know, are, are filled with just joy and this love and you bring joy to my heart and so on, but even you, your work is continuing and, and, and God is still working with you to the very end. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, and as much as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So he's saying that the Philippians, they did two things for him. The first is, they showed him care, right, while he was in prison, because again, they sent Epaphroditus to him, they sent him with gifts, they are asking about him. They are praying for him. They want to, to know that he is doing well. So he feels comforted in the love that they are showing him. Again, it's one body. Um, so that is the first thing that brings joy. The second thing that brings joy is because they share in his mission. They are defending the gospel and partaking of his ministry. Right When he says, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. Like They are doing the work that he cannot do, that he is now in prison, unable to go around to preach, 
they are the ones that are defending the gospel. So he sees in them kind of the fruit of his labor, that he came to them and they knew nothing of Christ. There was no church. Again, they were pagans. But now when he writes to them, they are a mature church, and they have people who are willing to to, to, to suffer affliction with him. There are people who are asking about him. There are people who are defending the gospel. Like in every way, he looks to them and he is joyful at what they have become. Right? He's joyful at what they have become and he's confident that they will continue to grow. Right? St. Paul was able to successfully transmit the faith to them. Not just in the words, but in the, in the actions and in the life and in the thoughts and the, and the, and the transformation. Right? The transformation. You know, there are a lot of times people will listen with the mind and they will absorb facts and information, right? But to say that my life has been truly transformed, it means that now this information is not compartmentalized in just one part of me, but it becomes all of me, right? It becomes all of me and everything else that I used to spend my time doing now becomes kind of like on the periphery. It doesn't mean that I stopped doing those things, but those things are no longer the core of my life, right? Those things are no longer the center of my life, right? Like, forgive me, but I'm going to give an example. Sometimes people will say, well, we are joining some kind of sports league, okay? Soccer league, basketball league, some kind of league. And these games for the leagues are on Sat Sunday mornings, okay? But I really like sports, and I really want to be in the league. And so I joined the league, but it means that I can't come to church for an extended period of time, not just like once or twice, for an extended period of time, for months maybe. I can't come to church on Sundays because I've joined the league, okay? So which is the more important thing, right? Is the core of my life Christ and everything else that I do like a peripheral thing? Like, yeah, okay, I can play soccer, I can play this, I can play that. But there are some r limits to what I will allow to encroach on what is the most important thing in my life, which is Christ himself and every activity related to Christ, right? So, so the, the idea that, that this faith enters into a person to, to, so where it alters all of their decisions, all of their choices, all of their priorities, all of their thoughts, it's a transformation that happens. It's not just some ideas that I keep on one part of my brain and, you know, compartmentalize. It's like this is the church part. You know, this is the church part. When I come to church, I activate this part. And then the rest of my life, I'm, I'm at work, I'm activating the work part, and I'm activating this part and this part and this part, right? It is not about being compartmentalized because the faith is not just one more thing on my long list of things that are important to me. The faith is the only thing that is the actual importance, and everything else is just a sideshow, right? Everything else is just maybe we do it because we have to or we do it because we enjoy it, but it's never going to... Um, to encroach on the thing that is the most important thing, right? That is what he is describing in these people, right? It is completely entered into them, right? That that he he he, he they they see that they see his chains and they are not frightened even by what will happen. You know, it's like it's one thing to accept faith, but then the moment that I am threatened with suffering for it, I run away, and I say, no, I I can't. I don't. I don't. I am not ready to suffer for for this. It's nice information, and it's nice when I hear about God's mercy and his blessings and all of that. But the moment that you ask me to carry a cross and to suffer for, the, for his name's sake, then it's like, no, I'm not ready for that. 
Like that is too frightening to me. That I'm not I'm not ready to do that. I'm here as long as it's about you giving me stuff. But the moment that you ask me to give back something, that you ask me to sacrifice something, then I am going to run away, right? So this is um, a reflection of spiritual maturity. How spiritually mature um, are we? And clearly, by his speech toward the Philippians, he sees them as having attained quite high spiritual maturity, even though it has been quite a short time since they have become Christians. Um, his feelings toward them are similar to what he said um, to the Corinthians when he, when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Like he sees himself truly as a father, right? He's not just, this isn't a job for him. You know, it's not just something that he's doing it because he has to do it or he gets paid to do it. No, he, this is, he is a father to them. He will give of himself completely to them. Um, uh, and, and that's the way he sees them. <coughs> and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he is showing them the the love of christ and the love of christ was a sacrificial love sacrificing himself for them okay and he is praying that even while he is there in the prison that they increase in knowledge and discernment okay that they increase in knowledge and discernment what is discernment discernment is the right application of knowledge the right application like wisdom okay the right application we might have a lot of knowledge, but we don't know how or when to apply the knowledge and in what way, right? That is a lack of discernment when we don't know. For instance, when should I speak and when should I remain silent? Like maybe we know, like let's say someone in front of us is saying something incorrect. And because we have knowledge, we know that it is incorrect. So that's me having knowledge. But having wisdom is what do I do now? Like what do I do? Do I say something? If I say something, what do I say? Do I say it now? Do I say it later? Do I say it with words? Or do I say it through actions? Do I say it um, by giving an, a story? You know, kind of like the way that Nathan the prophet rebuked King David. He rebuked him with a story. He didn't even come to him and say, God is rebuking you for this and this. He said a story. And King David figured it out, right, through the story. That's wisdom, right? How to use the knowledge that we have in a wise way, how to have a discerning thoughts, to discern right from wrong, to discern how to react and what actions to take. You know, you know when do we defend ourselves and when do we remain silent? You know, like because you see both examples. You see places in the scripture, for instance, where Saint Paul defended himself. But you see, for instance, when Christ remained silent, or you see saints in the church who remain silent, even though that they were um, being accused falsely of so many egregious things. Right? Some of them spoke up and some of them did not. How do we know? What is, the, is there just one answer? Because sometimes people want an answer like that. They're like, what should I do? Well, it, it's complicated. Right? There isn't one answer. Right? There are many, many factors. And the number one factor is the work of the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom to know how we should respond. Even when he, he's speaking about evangelism. He says, what, how do you respond to each one? 
Be prepared to give a defense, how you should respond to each one. Each one, the response to each one is different. There isn't one blanket statement or method of evangelism where you just go and say, do this, and here's an algorithm. You know, follow this algorithm, and you will get it. There's no algorithm, right? It uses, it requires discernment. When should we be firm with someone and take a stand? <coughs> when we should be we gentle and just let other people do what they're going to do, even if it's harming us in some way. Um, discernment is hard, right? And one of the things that those who are close to Christ um, receive is the spirit of discernment. How should we respond? How should we live? How should we understand the world? And, and how should we behave in it? Um, it says, to be able to discern the things that are excellent, right? That you may approve the things that are excellent, like to, to discern the excellent things. How can I find the excellent things and leave behind the things that are rubbish? You know, like every time there is some new fad or new trend in our society and it is presented as like this is the solution to all your problems. You do this thing and your life will be great and you will be happy. And, and so many people seriously just believe that and they want ha that happiness and they want the solutions to their problems and they run after that thing really believing that that thing holds the promise that they have made about it, right? And then maybe they go after it for a while and they realize, you know what, it wasn't really at all. Like it, didn't, it, didn't, it, it didn't do at all what it promised to do. The person who is discerning can look at it from the very beginning and tell, no, this is not what it's claimed to be, right? When, when St. Paul speaks about beware of, of false teachers, right? Beware of false teachers to detect that they are false teachers even before you follow them, not that you become a cult member and then five years down the line, after having been in the cult for five years, then you realize, oh, this is a cult. You know, I shouldn't have joined this place. Well, you've wasted five years of your life in it, right? No, but to discern it from the very beginning, to look at the warning signs, to, take, to, to be willing to receive guidance from other people, even though you don't see things the way that they do. Like that is a, a major way of being discerning, is to getting the guidance of others, getting the opinion of others, and being willing to follow the guidance of others even if I am not 100% convinced. <coughs> so he's saying, having known, uh, having known the depth of this relationship with God, that their love is abounding, that they are growing in discernment, that they are approving the things that are excellent, that they are sincere and without offense, right? He's asking them to walk in, 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 a, in a life of obedience and submission to the end, right? To the, to the very end being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. So in such a relationship with Christ and a relationship where we are sanctified by the Spirit, the fruits are will become evident, right? Sometimes we try to focus on the fruit. Like, I want to grow the fruit. You know, can you grow the fruit without growing the tree? Like, it's not possible. When you want, like, you know, in the end, like farmers, for instance, what do they want? They want the fruit. That's what they want. They want apples or oranges or whatever it is that's going to grow on the fruit on the tree that's what they want and that's what they're going to harvest but you don't see them watering the fruit they water the tree the whole tree has to grow and once the tree has matured to a certain level then the fruit will appear so the focus is not on let's feed the fruit let's just make sure the whole tree is healthy let's nourish the whole tree and once we have nourished the tree in due time, because the, 
process by which the fruit grows on the tree is already built into the tree, the fruit will manifest, and it will manifest in the perfect way at the perfect time. And any other artificial means we use to try to artificially create the fruit apart from nourishing the tree, it will fail. We won't be able to make the fruit, right? So, so saying what? Grow in your relationship with Christ, and then the fruit will come. You know, on more than one occasion, maybe somebody will come and join the church, brand new, right? Brand new to Christianity. And the first thing that they will say is, I want to go be a preacher. I want to go preach on the streets. Do you know anything to preach? Do you know anything about what we really believe to go and to preach? Maybe you don't have that gift yet. Maybe that hasn't manifested in you yet. doesn't mean that it won't, but you still got to wait a long time before you get to that point. Be patient and let the fruit manifest. Someone who becomes a Christian um, and, and then immediately they want, like, I'm still suffering with lust. I'm still suffering with laziness. I'm still suffering with impatience. I'm still suffering with anger. Yeah, give it time. right? Give it time and do your part in it. Don't rush for the fruit. Because sometimes when the fruit comes, it just makes us fall into pride, right, when it's there. Maybe God doesn't give us the fruit yet because he doesn't want us to fall into pride when it comes. Be patient and wait. This is the process. Let God work throughout this process. It doesn't mean that we don't try. Yes, we try and we pray and we repent. But let the, let the fruit come at the right time. He's saying being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are in Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, this is something that will come on you as you grow in knowledge and discernment and love. And when God continues to work on you, as he was saying, he who begun a good work on you will complete it at the end. Okay, So it is a process. But I want you to know, brethren, the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren and the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. <coughs> so he's saying, you want to know how me being in the prison <coughs> is actually a good for the gospel is actually good for the mission? Why is it that God even allowed me to be here? That some people could look at the situation and say, God, why don't you release St. Paul because he goes around you know, planting churches and preaching and whatnot and it would be better if he was out of prison. Why are you letting him stay in prison? Well, here he says it very clearly. Okay, The things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Meaning if I wasn't here in this prison, then I would not have been able to do the things that I am doing now. And he goes on, he says, it has become evident to the whole palace guard. Meaning the whole palace guard now sees in St. Paul that there is truth in Christianity. Something that they would have never believed before or never been exposed to before simply by seeing the example of St. Paul in prison and how he was filled with joy and how he was filled with love and the way he treated people and the way that he spoke. This was enough to catch the attention of the whole palace guard and to the rest, that my chains are in Christ, right? That this is no common prisoner, right? This is not just a common prisoner. This is not just like a thief or a criminal. No, there is something about this man that is unique and everybody sees it. There is something about him and everybody sees it. So he's saying, accept what happens, right? Accept. Don't be worried and stressed out, you know, because I am in prison. And don't be worried or stressed out if you are in prison or whatever metaphorical prison that you are in, right? Just be at peace. 
because what? All the things, the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So we don't know why God allows certain things, but we know that they are good. And this is what St. Paul is trying to say. It is good. Don't be stressed. Of course, we will all be stressed if we imagine that the things that are happening to us are bad. Like That is not what Christ is saying. The gospel doesn't say, yeah, all the things that are happening to you are bad. Just don't be stressed about it. No, it's saying all the things that happen to you are not bad. They look bad to you, but they are not bad. If they were bad, then you should be anxious about them. But because they are not bad, because God is turning them into good, then you should have peace about them. God is in control of them. And he's saying what? Not only that, but most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Meaning when the people see the boldness of St. Paul, even though he is in prison, they are also motivated to speak boldly, right? So it is a contagious thing. Like, like, like he, d he, was not, he did not cower away or be afraid, and so the result was more people wanted to be martyred. More people wanted to speak boldly. Less people were, or were afraid and hiding because they saw his, his actions and his behavior. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. What is he saying? Yeah, so he's saying those false teachers that are in the world that have always been envious of me, always envious that I have authority, always envious that people are following me, always envious people are listening to me, and they want to take that authority and they want to take that fame away for their own selfish ambition, right? Those very people now that they, uh, that, that I am in prison, they are encroaching on my territory, essentially. They are using the opportunity that now I'm in prison to preach. And he's saying, you know what? That's fine. Like, I'm not worried about that. I don't care about that. What I care about in the end, that Christ is preached. So if Christ is preached and it's the truth, even if the intentions of these teachers is not pure, he's saying, in this I, what? I rejoice. He says, um, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Like their motivation is not good, right? Their motivation is not good. Some from goodwill and some not, right? Um, but, but, but he says what? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So his whole focus, you see how like he was not in the picture at all. He was not asking people to be released from prison. He was not begging for his life. He was not sad and having a pity party about what was happening to him and why did God allow this. He, didn't, he wasn't even upset that people were, you know, people who were false teachers that were his enemies, you know, were, were, were preaching instead of him, right? Because he was not in the picture. He didn't care what happened to him. All he cared about was what happened with, with that people would be saved through the true gospel message. And it's really a, a beautiful and wonderful example that he sets for us because he's, he's doing, he's, he's completely focused 
on what it is that he was called for, and he is not even in the picture in his own mind at all. He doesn't do anything for himself. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. <coughs> According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So when he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer, so he believes that he will be released because he was there for two years and then he was released. And then later on he was he was incarcerated again. This first incarceration was a house arrest. So he was um, kind of in a, in a rented house. Um, he couldn't leave, but he could receive visitors. That's why Epaphroditus and others would go be able to visit him. Uh, and then eventually he was released, but then when he was uh, imprisoned again, that time was like he was in a dungeon. Um, he wasn't, and then that's when he was ultimately martyred um, there. So here he is, he believes that he will be released um, through through their prayers, but regardless of whether he is or not, uh, he remains committed and faithful, whether in life or death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? To, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, it, it reminded me of the parable of the pearl of great price. You know, in this parable, there is this man who, 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 who sees this pearl that is so valuable. And so he says, I'm going to go sell all that I have in order to buy this pearl. Because all that I have is actually of lower value than the pearl. So I am gaining by doing this. By selling all that I have, I'm gaining. And this is the mentality that St. Paul has and that he's asking us to have. He's saying, when you invest in your spiritual life, when you sacrifice your physical life, the things that you enjoy in your physical life, when you sacrifice your ego, when you sacrifice your food, when you sacrifice your time, when you sacrifice your money, when you sacrifice those things that are yours in your, in your, in your worldly life, in order to invest in your spiritual life, you are gaining. You are, you are increasing yourself. You are growing yourself. Maybe in the flesh, when we do those things, we find them to be difficult because we feel like we are losing. Like I'm giving of something that I could have used in another way, right? I could have spent that money on something else. I could have used that time on something else. I could have whatever, right? But, but the, the mentality that St. That Paul has is what? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Meaning my entire life, all of it all together, every single part of it is of no value but to gain christ is the only thing that is valuable to gain christ is the only thing that is valuable and i will sell all that i have in order to gain christ but if i live on in the flesh this will mean fruit from my labor yet what i shall choose i cannot tell for i am hard pressed between the two having a desire to depart and be with christ which is far better nevertheless to remain in the flesh is more needful for you so he's saying, I'm torn between these two things. You know, the idea of me being martyred and going to be with Christ, this is far better. This is what I would desire. But at the same time, if I live on in the flesh, then it, this will mean fruit from my labor, meaning he is able to serve in the world. He's able to benefit the Philippians. He's able to benefit all the churches. He's, he's, he's able to serve God in the world. And so there is fruit in his labor, which is good. At the same time, though, he says, I, I desire to be with Christ, which is far better. 
right? To remain in the flesh is more needful for you, but having a desire to depart and be with Christ. So in the end, he cannot make this choice because obviously it is not even his choice to make. The choice is made for him by God, according to God's providence, whenever God sees that the time is right for him to leave the world. In Galatians 2.20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So his whole life belongs to Christ. And whatever it is that Christ wants of me, this I will do. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you, with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So he says what I believe, I'm confident that I will, that this is not my time yet. I believe that I will come out of this again and I will come to you again. Um, and, and in this, we will all also rejoice um, that you, you will rejoice when you see me and I will rejoice when I see you um, uh, in the flesh. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with, m with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Right? So whether he comes and sees them in person or whether not, whether he is with them or absent, he wants to always hear of their affairs, that they are, <coughs> that they are living uh, in the faith. And he, s he says again, you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, right? Like we said at the beginning about there is one body and that we are in the one body. He's saying that you stand fast in the one spirit and the one mind, and this is the fellowship. The fellowship is what promotes the one spirit and the one mind, right? That we are of one spirit and we are of one mind and that we have love um, for one another. And not in any uh, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. Right? She so says, "Do not be afraid of your enemies." Right? Like when your enemies see your strength, they themselves will will realize that they are dying. Right? It is the proof of their perdition. When you go up against an enemy, like you know, imagine like you have an army that is going to attack another army. And they're attacking them, believing that they are very weak, right? That they are going to easily conquer them. And when they begin to fight them, they realize that this army is actually so powerful that there is no way for them to conquer them. And so in that moment, they become terrified because they themselves are going to perish, right? Like those people who come against us, who think that we are weak, actually do not realize the power of Christ that is in us and that they themselves will fall. St. John Chrysostom, he said, when the persecutors could not overcome those they persecute, the planners could not overcome those against whom they plan, and those of whom authority could not overcome those under their authority, is it not a proof enough that their perdition is close at hand, that their power is not, and that what they did are vain, what they, and, and that what they did are vain and weak? The apostle says that all this is from God. So anyone who believes that they have the, the power to conquer Christ or Christians, they will eventually realize that they have no power, right? That they, are, that they have no um, authority uh, at all.
For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So we have been granted. Look at this, how he, what he says. It has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So the first thing is it says it's been granted like it's a gift. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm giving you a gift by allowing you to suffer, right? To suffer for his sake, not only to believe, right? It's not only a belief to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Christ, not only a belief, but to suffer. Not only a thought, but an action, right? And, 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 and it is a gift that God is giving to us. I am allowing you. I am allowing you to suffer for my sake. That this is a great glory. That this is worthy of great reward and great blessing. Um, St. John Chrysostom said, Suffering for the sake of Christ is a grace, a free gift. Do not be ashamed of the gift of grace, for it is more marvelous than the power of raising the dead and of performing wonders. For by the latter I would be indebted, while here, by suffering, Christ is indebted to me. It is befitting of us, therefore, to rejoice for getting this gift. So he's saying, um, I am I am, I'm offering myself to Christ. I'm giving myself to him. Also, we read in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles were beaten by the Sanhedrin council, it says, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Right? So all throughout in the scripture, in the church, early church, and up till now, the idea of giving ourselves to Christ, and, and suffering for Christ doesn't mean just like martyrdom. There's all kinds of suffering that we suffer for Christ. Even like warring against the flesh is a suffering, you know? Being like being self-controlled in the midst of temptation, this is a suffering because our nature is corrupt and we are warring against that nature. It's like we are carrying with us like an enemy that is that we are carrying with us all the time that is whispering in our ears, that's telling us to do the things that are wrong and constantly trying to silence that voice, trying to war against that voice, trying to fight that voice, to diminish that voice. That is a constant suffering, right? So in the idea of the suffering, it's not just like some external suffering necessarily, but the life of a Christian is a suffering life, a life of self-denial, a life where we are trying to live in a controlled way against the desires of the flesh. This is also um, a suffering. But of course, there's the external suffering as well. But um, again, this is according to God's plan and according to God's way. Any questions about this chapter? Yes. So the question is, how do we maintain this attitude where we believe that suffering is really a gift all the time? You know, like, like I mean, uh, I feel, <laughs> I feel like everything or everyone around, like in the world, tells us that suffering is something to be avoided, mm. right? And then you hear of saints who like pray for suffering, right? And like, we're probably somewhere in that spectrum but like how do you i don't that's such a like the patience that you may not see that giftness yeah i mean the thought that comes to my mind is this so if somebody gives you a gift like a box that's a gift wrapped and gives it to you and has your name on it 
do you believe that that gift is a gift? Do you believe it's a gift? It looks like a gift, right? So you believe it's a gift. Does someone have to convince you that it's a gift? No. So the thing that we lack in general when it comes to all the spiritual activities is the faith to see the things that are invisible. You know? Like, if if we could see the things that Christ speaks about, then then the spiritual life would be easy because we could see it. You know, the thing that's hard is because our faith is weak, so we struggle to see. Maybe we believe with our minds and we want to believe with a depth of faith to where all of our emotions and all of our reactions and everything is based on that invisible faith. But that's what we strive for. Right, like we—that's part of what we struggle for for our whole life—is to be able to accept things by faith. So, I think it, faith. Obviously, there's different stages of faith. There's the kind of faith where I'm just trying to remind myself of something that I know is true, even though I don't feel it at all. And maybe I feel a lot. I feel anxious all the time. Uh, I, I'm stressed out all the time because I'm struggling to believe that Christ is really with me, struggling to believe that all of his promises are true. But the deeper we go in our relationship with God, the more we see God working in our life and we become more convinced of his real presence, then the faith becomes easier because I have observed him. I've observed him working. This is like, you know, like a lot of times you have like someone maybe who has lived as a Christian for decades and decades of their life and has, you know, come to old age someone who's been a Christian their whole life, and you look to them and, y and you see in them there's this kind of peace that even in the midst of all kinds of problems, they are at rest and they are trying to calm everybody else down and trying to remind everybody of God's goodness and whatnot. How did they get to that point? They got to that point because of their experience, right? They observed over the course of their life. If we read the word of God and we ask God to, to grant us this faith and God works in our lives and through experience, we grow in faith. That's how this becomes easier. It becomes easier only through the work of God in us. Not because, I mean, I can't point to any specific thing for us to do <coughs> to convince ourselves. It's a constant war of the mind. We are fighting against our mind. Our senses are telling us one thing, but the scripture is telling us something else. And the spirit is telling us something else. So, so that's part of the battle, right? But over time, by the grace of God, we grow in faith to where when those problems happen, we don't necessarily react to them with such anxiety or fear as maybe we would have before. But it I'm not trying to say that it's like we, we don't feel anything. But, but over time, we begin to just immediately, my, the first thought is, I trust that God is in control, right? And I've seen him be in control in the past in many different situations, and so I know he will continue to be um, in control. Like, I mean, look at these apostles, right? Like, these apostles who were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer, shame, suffer shame for Christ. Like, what is it that they had experienced? Like, they spent three years living with Christ. They saw him be beaten. They saw him be crucified. They saw him being buried. They saw that the tomb was empty. They saw him appear to them after he died. They saw him walk on water. They saw him multiply five loaves and two. Like, they saw him do all of those things. And so now having that experience with him, no one, no matter what they said, could ever convince them that Christ was not real. Like, noth nothing could convince them. That's why they were martyred, because, yeah, I mean, I, I can't accept. I can't accept the idea that Christ isn't real because he is real.
So, so they, of course, had the benefit of seeing Christ in the flesh and seeing him perform miracles in the flesh. But we have the gift of the Holy Spirit to where we can experience the God in the Spirit. And in our submission to him, in our obedience, um, in our following him, he will make himself more and more manifest so that we can also see him like they did with eyes of faith. Any other comments? Glory be to God forever. Amen. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing. We ask, O Lord, that you be with us, and you grant us to have the same joy that St. Paul had, that even though he was in the midst of difficult situations, and even though his life was far from comfortable, and that everywhere he went, he did not live for himself, nor did he allow his body to rest, but he continued to struggle and strive, O Lord, to grow your kingdom. That even despite all these things, that his life was filled with very little reward, but that, your, that his reward came from you. We ask, O God, that you allow us to receive and accept whatever situations you have allowed in our lives, and that we continue, O Lord, in faith to work with you, to receive from you, O Lord, every good thing, to be obedient to you, to submit our will to you, and to strive, O Lord, for holiness and godliness our entire life. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints here as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.